God, you and you alone reign supreme. Lord, as we've been singing all morning, Lord, there is nothing that your sovereignty does not cover. So Lord, I pray as we look at this passage, uh, Lord, this difficult passage, that you would remind us of your power and your might, or that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Lord, I pray that that would move us this morning, that that would uh, cause us to consider what kind of kingdom that we are truly living for. So Lord, be our teacher this morning, we pray uh, in Jesus' name, amen. The Gene Dixon effect uh, was coined in 1997 by a mathematician. Uh, It's named after, of course, Gene Dixon, who was uh, a very famous American psychic and astrologer in the mid-1900s. She actually had her own column in the newspaper publicizing her predictions. But the Gene Dixon effect is not a positive term. It actually refers and describes people who only focus on the few correct predictions of the future and completely ignore a large number of incorrect uh, predictions of the future. See, even though Gene Dixon uh, guessed correctly uh, the assassination of, uh, of John F. Kennedy, she had a lot of predictions go wrongly. Uh, she incorrectly predicted uh, World War III beginning in 1958. She incorrectly predicted that the Soviets would be uh, the first to put man on the moon. She incorrectly predicted the winner of the 1960 presidential election. The list goes on and on. And yet despite being wrong so many times, uh, she ended up serving on Richard Nixon's uh, committee on counterterrorism. Now, from my perspective, I think the Gene Dixon effect is just one piece of evidence that we as a people are infatuated with prophecy. We want to know the future, and whenever the future is being talked about, our ears tend to perk up about what is being said. I think underneath that is the desire for control, the desire for security. We want to know what's going to happen so that we're ready, so we have a plan, so that we are in control. And yet for many, I think that the future being unknown is very unnerving. It's deeply unsettling. It creates a lot of fear and panic. And yet for us as the people of God, this should never be the case. Not because we're psychics, not because we're astrologers, not because we've fallen into the Gene Dixon effect, but because we have the Word of God. The Word of God is without error. And even though God doesn't tell us everything about the future, He has told us enough in order for us to trust in Him. In fact, there are over 1,800 different prophecies in the Bible, 1,800, and most of them have already come true. There are some that we're still waiting to come true, but it's just evidence that God and God alone knows the future, so we should not panic or fear. Now, despite so many who greatly want to know the future, there tends to be a misunderstanding about prophecy, and in particular, biblical prophecy. Some, even within the church, think that the purpose of biblical prophecy is for God to help us to become aware of something about the future, for us to to know the future, to have uh, information and knowledge. In fact, that's what King Nebuchadnezzar thought. That's why he has Daniel standing before him in Daniel chapter 2, because Daniel's about to tell him something about the future, because King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And He knew it had something to do with the future, something to do with his empire, but he didn't know exactly what. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to know 
the future. He wants to know this prophecy because for him, he just wants information. And yet God, through Daniel, wants to show him something much more important. And we have the privilege of exploring what that is this morning. Now, if you've seen uh, the new Disney movie, Encanto, uh, no, we're not going to be talking about Bruno this morning. But we will be dipping our toes into apocalyptic prophecy today. Okay, so buckle up a little bit. We're going to get into the deep end, and I'll try to be helpful today. So as we dive in, uh, we are first um, confronted with the content of this dream. Now, just a reminder, last week we were exposed to the first half of Daniel chapter 2, and we ended on a cliffhanger. Daniel is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's the most powerful person in the world. We can't forget that. Daniel's life is on the line, and he's about to tell King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of his dream. Remember, this dream is a disturbing dream. This has cost King Nebuchadnezzar countless nights of sleep, and it was creating instability throughout the entire kingdom. Now, in verses 31 through 35, we're told what the dream is, and immediately we we recognize it's simple, but it's very strange. It involves two different aspects. Number one, we have the great statue in verses 31 through 33. Now, verse 31 tells us and helps explain why King Nebuchadnezzar assumed that this was divine revelation and not just an ordinary dream. Because the image that he saw was so glorious, so enormous, so brilliant, that it terrified him. And this image was a large statue. We don't know for sure, but most scholars believe that the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar ends up building for himself in chapter 3, which was over 90 feet tall, is actually based on what he saw in this dream. This dream with the statue was huge, it was dazzling, but it was also very symbolic. If you notice, as Daniel's explaining the statue, it contains different aspects, contains different materials. The head was made of pure gold, the chest and arms of silver, the stomach and thighs of bronze, the legs iron, the the feet and and, and toes were were made of part iron, part clay. Just notice here the, the progressive decline in value from top to bottom, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. It's very significant as we get to the meaning of the dream. But there's not only a statue here, there's also a great stone in verses 34 and 35. And the stone does something very alarming and very strange. It strikes the large statue and breaks it into pieces. Now we're told in verse 34 that this stone is not made from human hands, so we can assume it's made from uh, the divine hand of God. And it has an extraordinary amount of power, for it destroyed this large statue. And the result is broken pieces of the statue in verse 35. The wind just blows them away. They're gone. They're forgotten. But it's the stone that fills the whole earth. Now, the question is, the million-dollar question, is what does this dream mean? What do these various materials mean? represent. Now, before we get to the details of the dream, I think it's really important to know the the kind of genre that the book of Daniel is written. Uh, The book of Daniel uh, actually has two. 
The, the first six chapters is predominantly a historical narrative. Lots of stories in the first six chapters. But then the last six chapters, the back end, is a different kind of genre. It's apocalyptic prophecy. In fact, even Daniel chapter 2, this dream fits apocalyptic uh, prophecy. Now that's important because when you take a step back, the, the whole Bible is filled with different genres that requires us as the reader to read it and to interpret it differently depending on the genre. And we do this intuitively every day. Like when you get a text message from a spouse, you read that differently than reading the manual to your car or reading the different signs as you're driving or reading a history book. We do that intuitively. We must do that with the Bible. Depending on the genre, it requires to use different interpretation methods and principles. Well, when you're looking at apocalyptic prophecy, which I think is the most difficult genre in the Bible, one of the most important principles is to keep the plain things the main things, all right? The, the temptation is to go down different bunny trails and, and try to understand what all of the little details are that you lose the forest because of the trees. And so today, we're going to avoid that. We're going to avoid reading into things that just aren't clear that we do not know, okay? So with that, we're going to hold that principle up. We're going to keep referring to it. Let's get to the meaning of the dream, okay? Keep the plain things the main things. Notice, number one, the statue isn't doing anything, right? That, I know that's obvious, but the statue isn't talking. Uh, the statue isn't acting. It's just there. Now, it's glorious, but it's just there. The, the meaning, though, the significance here is in what the different materials, the different aspects of the statue represent and what happens to the statue because of the great stone. Okay, those are the two things that we're going to unpack uh, this morning. Okay, now Daniel helps us here because in verse 38, he begins by explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar what the gold, what the head represents. And it's very encouraging if you're King Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel tells him, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head, you are the gold, that the Babylonian empire is the head, is the gold. Now, this is very encouraging for King Nebuchadnezzar who has lost sleep over what the meaning of this dream is. But then, Daniel says in verses 39 and 40, and what boldness to say this, what courage for Daniel to say this before the king. He says, another kingdom inferior to you shall, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Okay, now there are a lot, there's a lot in those couple of verses there. So we're just going to unpack these, um, these two verses and what these kingdoms or what these different materials represent. Now, virtually all scholars believe that the different parts of the statue represent different empires, specifically the four successive world kingdoms, world empires, starting uh, with the Babylonian empire, moving to the Persian empire, then to the Greek, and then to the Roman empire. Now, there are slightly different nuances depending on which scholar that you're reading, but these, I think, are the four most convincing in what these empires and what these different materials represent. Now, verse 39 
uh, the word inferior there is used, but that's not to refer to the size because each of these empires that come after it actually uh, grow. They actually expand far larger than the empire before it. But the word inferior there most likely refers to the morality of that empire. Okay, so progressively uh, gets worse and worse from an ethical and moral uh, point of view. And the Roman Empire, though, is the strongest. This has the most detail here. If you look at verse 40, there are different terms that accurately describe the Roman Empire. Breaks, shatters, crushes, right? This describes Romans' rule and ruling the nations with an iron hand. That is huge iron club that shattered all who resisted its will. Rome dominated for years. Now again, what I want to avoid is wasting time pontificating on exactly what the feet and the toes represent. There are theories after theories after theories about what the toes represent, right? There are implications of those things. If you're bored, if you're cooped up, you know, if snow's coming, uh, you can have you know, a lot of fun time reading about what those different theories are. But for us, again, I don't want us to miss the forest because of the trees and really miss the main point of this dream and the implications for us. Because the most important question, I think, is what does the stone represent? Okay, Because the stone is what destroys the statue. What does that refer to? Well, most scholars believe that the stone here, at the very least, actually refers to the kingdom of God. Daniel tells us in verses 44 through 45, he gives us some more detail about the stone. First, he says in verse 44 that in those days, referring to the Roman days, the Roman Empire, God's kingdom is being established and will rise. This is exactly what Jesus did, that when Jesus came, he inaugurated, he established the kingdom of God. Now, there is disagreement on the nature of God's kingdom in verses 44 through 45. This unfortunately takes us back to our eschatology sermon series from the fall. I'm not going to reteach that, re-preach that right here in this moment. I'll just say that there are two main views about the nature of God's kingdom in verses 44 through 45. This either refers to Christ's physical reign on the earth, which if you're a dispensationalist, that's the view that you hold to. And uh, I'll be very honest with you this morning, there are a lot of convincing arguments for that, even throughout the book of Daniel. But the second view is that this refers to Jesus' spiritual rule, his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people uh, throughout the church. Now, we don't have time to unpack which view is, uh, is correct, but I want you to understand, though, that this does refer to God's kingdom. Okay, let's just agree to that. Remember, we want to keep the force and not lose the force because of the trees. The question that we must ask every passage of Scripture, what does this teach us about God? What does this show us about God? Right? We, we don't want to fall into behavior modification. We don't want to fall into, you know, kind of looking at things that are just kind of intellectually stimulating we want to know about God. God is what changes us. God is what informs how we ought to live. And I think there are really important truths here about God, specifically about his kingdom, that we desperately need to know this morning. And so this morning, I want to share five truths about God's kingdom that we need to be reminded today. And let me tell you why this is important. 
This is important because you and I, as we talked about the kingdom of self last week, you and I, we tend to build and advance and protect the kingdom that we are persuaded is most powerful and most beautiful. And it's either the kingdom of self or it's another kingdom. And so these five truths are really helpful to show us just how powerful and beautiful and amazing God's kingdom and God's power actually is. So these five truths, this is not just like, hey, here's, here's the doctrine of God's kingdom. I hope you enjoy this today. No, these truths are meant to convict and challenge and pierce you today to expose what kingdom you're actually living for. These truths want to release that grip that you and I have on living for ourselves, living for the kingdom of me, and to make sure that we have the right king on the throne of our hearts. And it must be King Jesus. All right? So, someone I've been praying for us to pray for me today. I want these five truths to pierce me and to stir my affections for the kingdom of God and for King Jesus. All right, now we're going to start small and kind of build as we move on here. But the first one here in verse 34 is that the kingdom of God has divine origin. Divine origin. Again, verse 34 refers to the stone representing the kingdom of God was cut out by no human hand. This is by the divine hand of of God. God establishes his kingdom. This means God's kingdom is not of this world. It has different priorities, different values, different expectations for his citizens. It has a divine origin. All right, but secondly, another truth here is that the kingdom of God is eternal. Look at verse 44, describes this kingdom as a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor be left to another people. It will endure for all time. Now, Daniel loves this theme about the kingdom of God because he's in exile right now. And so in a couple of chapters later, Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, he reinforces this by saying, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, that would have been massively massively encouraging. If you're Daniel, if you're one of Daniel's friends, if you are in exile right now, where your everyday existence is directly impacted by this foreign ruler who's basically determining the terms by which you are living, that it could feel as if this is what will be forever. This foreign ruler is going to be on the throne and I'm going to be in this kingdom for all time. And yet this truth here This is a reminder that as you look around, what you see will not always be forever. That there is coming a day in which a perfectly righteous king, a perfectly just king, a perfectly wise king will rule over his people forevermore. And there's no end to God's rule and reign. Think about that for a moment. There's no no end. There's no expiration date to God's rule and reign. There, there's no ruler or kingdom rising in the east in the future that will eventually take over God's kingdom. There's no future uprising, no future rebellion. There's no future coup. God's kingdom is indestructible. There's one king and one kingdom forevermore, and it's God's. Now, thirdly, and this is also amazingly encouraging, is that the kingdom of God will be 
victorious. Verse 44 describes God's kingdom as the one that will crush and shatter and break into pieces all earthly kingdoms, including the kingdom of self. Verse 45 describes the stone here. The kingdom of God is breaking the iron, breaking gold, breaking the bronze, breaking the clay, breaking the silver, that all evil empires will pass away in utter defeat because there's one kingdom, one king who stands victorious and triumphant. Man, if you're in exile at this time, what more do you need for encouragement? If you're you today, if you're me today, what more do we need for encouragement than to be reminded that Jesus wins in the end? As you look around and as you see so much evil and sin or as you personally experience hardship and trial and and all kinds of difficulty, there is coming a day when Jesus will reign forevermore and his victory will be experienced by all. Look, I, I want you to be encouraged by the reality that your life, if you are in Christ today, your life has been purchased by the precious blood of the risen Lamb of God, the King of Kings, who is the victorious one over all, and Jesus wins in the end. Be encouraged by that, yeah. Because look, the reality is he's not worried. Jesus is not fretting up there. He's not concerned about what's happening in the affairs of man. He has a plan, and it's unfolding exactly how he wants it to unfold. The outcome is secure. Jesus wins. Man, imagine being Daniel as you're explaining the meaning of this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I wonder if he starts to kind of smirk at this moment or winks to his buddies, you know, God's got this. God's in control. God will win. This is incredibly encouraging for the people of God. But it gets better. Here's number four, is that the kingdom of God will certainly come. I love the audacity that Daniel has here in verse 45. Concludes that this interpretation by God of this dream, he tells King Nebuchadnezzar that this dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. Daniel emphasizes the assurance of the fulfillment of this revelation because it's from God and his word can be trusted. That just as these four empires have come and they've gone, so too God's kingdom will rule forevermore. And the certainty of this is rooted in God's sovereignty. Key theme throughout Daniel. In fact, James Boyce says this about God's sovereignty, that if God does not control our lives, from the actions of kings and others in position of power to the most minute circumstances, then everything in life is uncertain. We are victims of circumstances then, and whatever happens will happen. But if God is sovereign, as the Bible declares him to be, and if, if he is our God, if the promises he makes and the actions he takes are certain of fulfillment, then we can be confident of the future and know that we will be able to live our lives in a way that will please God. Look, we can bank our lives on what God has said in his word because he is sovereign and because he is in control of all things. Now, the last aspect of the kingdom of God that I want to draw your attention to is that the kingdom of God is ruled by King 
Jesus. I love the, the symbolism of the stone here. I think it's multifaceted. Again, at the very least, it refers to the kingdom of God. But if you know the New Testament at all, you know that it's Jesus who establishes the kingdom of God. You know it's Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom of God. There are many references to this throughout the New Testament. One of the clearest, though, I think, is in Luke chapter 20. In Luke 20, Jesus is telling a story to describe the kingdom of God, the nature of God's kingdom. And he starts out and he says that there was a vineyard. Again, the vineyard refers to the kingdom of God. And within the vineyard, there were these tenants that were not paying their rent. And so the owner of the vineyard, which represents God, sends some messengers to go and collect payments. Now the messengers represent the prophets. And so these messengers, the prophets, come to the tenants to collect money, but the tenants uh, chase these messengers off. They beat them and and they, they get them to go away. And so the owner, God, he sends his own son to go and collect. Well, the tenants do the unthinkable, the unimaginable. They, they actually kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. And so the owner comes, God himself, and he kills the tenants and gives the vineyard to other people. Now, in a clear attempt to identify himself with the son and the listeners with these doomed tenants, Jesus, in Luke 20, he actually quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, which says that the stone the builders rejected has become the corner stone. And then Jesus immediately associates this stone with the stone of Daniel 2 by saying, everyone who falls on that stone will be what? Will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus himself identifies with this stone that was predicted 600 years before Jesus actually lived. But not only that, other references we have in 1 Peter, which is the New Testament version of Daniel, if you will. Peter calls Jesus the living stone. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Look, even Daniel himself, he reinforces this. Like a few chapters later, he shares this vision of God's future kingdom and who it is that's actually ruling it. He says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him him. Isn't scripture amazing? These prophecies that we have throughout the scriptures tell us about the beauty and the power of Jesus. 
Like this, from my perspective, our perspective on this side of the cross, what is most remarkable about this dream and the interpretation of this dream is not the fact that it's accurate in predicting what will come in the future, but what's so remarkable is how beautiful this is in pointing to the glory of Jesus. This is what's so amazing for us as the people of God who have the New Testament to see how something 600 years before Jesus was born predicted him and all that he is going to do. Because within the fourth kingdom, in this dream, the, the iron, the, the Roman empire, the, the, the most powerful empire of the four, at the height of its power, there was, out in the Middle East, this little teenage virgin woman. At the height of Roman's power, and that little teenage virgin was confronted by an angel and the angel told her that you will have a son and his name will be Jesus. And it says in Luke chapter one, and the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father, David, the greatest inhabitant of Judah, the greatest of Israel's kings, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary obviously is confused at this, asks, how can this be? And the angel says that God will do it. In fact, when Jesus is born, Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says that the people declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus did come, Jesus was born, and the hope of the world was placed upon Jesus as the promised Messiah that the king is finally here. The king is born as Jesus begins his ministry, as he performs all of these miracles and all of these teachings and exercises control and power like none other. Hope is growing. Hope is building. But then Jesus gets up on a cross and he dies. And it's not just any cross. It's the cross of the Roman Empire. It's the iron it's a Roman cross, and all hope seems lost. It seems as if Daniel got it wrong. It seems as if his interpretation, he, he, he must have misheard from God himself that it's not the stone who's crushing the statue, but it seems like the statue has crushed the stone. And yet, if you know the story, you know that not even death could hold down this king. If you know the story of the gospel, you know that as Jesus died, that was not the end because nothing could hold down this king. That Jesus, who is the king of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who is the alpha and the omega, who is the great I am, who is the lion of Judah, he is the rock of ages, not only crushed the statue, but he crushed the head of the serpent, Satan himself, forevermore. That Jesus, the King of Kings, raised to life three days later, showing his victory over death, over sin, over our enemy forever. And Philippians 2 tells us that God placed Jesus at his right hand, gave him all power and all authority, and there is a day coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is the King forever. It's amazing what Daniel 2 shows us about Jesus, 
that Jesus and Jesus alone rules and reigns over all. He is the stone that smashed all and crushed all kingdoms of this world. And this is the stone that became a mountain and fills the earth. Right? So Jesus not only established the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is not only an everlasting kingdom, but he has an international kingdom. That this includes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And look, all of this was predicted by God. All of this was predicted accurately by God. See, the point of biblical prophecy, this is not a good guess, but prophecy is good news for a guessing world. The purpose of prophecy is not to make you aware of something, it's to make you adore someone. It's not to wow you with information and knowledge about the future. Prophecy is meant to cause you to worship the one who holds the future in his hand. And that's what God is doing in this moment, in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person in the world. He's not just giving him information. He's not just giving him knowledge. God is trying to expose King Nebuchadnezzar which kingdom he will serve his own kingdom or God's. And we're going to explore more of what King Nebuchadnezzar actually decides because it gets a little bit murky here in the next couple of chapters. But this is an incredible moment for King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the most stressful season in his early empire. And he's given an opportunity to decide which kingdom he will surrender to. Will he continue to advance and build and protect his own kingdom, his own empire? Or will he bend his knee and surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And look, the reality is, is that you have that same question. You have that same two options as King Nebuchadnezzar. You can either continue to rule and reign and advance and protect the kingdom of self, the kingdom of me, or you can surrender and you can submit yourself to the true and righteous king and his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. You have that choice every day with the decisions that you make, with how you spend your time and your money and your affections and your allegiance. Every day, you are making a declaration at which kingdom you are truly living for. And so we can look at Daniel 2, and we can be intellectually stimulated with the apocalyptic prophecy, but we can also be strangely convicted here and confronted with this question about which kingdom you are truly living for. Is it God's or is it your own? And if you're here today and you're still living for your own kingdom, that you're saying no to living for God's kingdom and surrendering to him, the Bible describes that your life will actually be crushed by the weight of God's wrath upon your life because of your sin, because of your disobedience, because you're living for yourself. You're not living for the right king, for your own creator. And that's not God being evil. That's God actually being just. That because of your sin, you have eternal consequences in hell forever. And yet God's not only just, God is kind and he's loving and he's gracious because he has, sent, he has made a way 
for you to be forgiven, for you to, to, to be made righteous with the king because he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the king and the stone to die in your place on the cross, to pay for your sin, to pay for your penalty, to pay for all of your guilt. And he raised to life three days later and he offers anybody forgiveness and grace and mercy. And if you're here today, you haven't made that decision to accept that free gift of eternal life, why not make it today? Why not make it today to finally bend that knee and say, God, I accept your free gift of grace. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to live for you. We'd love for you to make that decision today. Well, as we look at the end of the story here, there's one more thing to point out. In verses 46 through 49, we have Daniel's promotion we see King Nebuchadnezzar's, the, the beginning of his response is to honor Daniel. He acknowledges Yahweh as the revealer of mysteries. He promotes Daniel. Daniel gets his buddies to be promoted as well. And we see Daniel who's serving high, high up in the royal court, high up in the political realm with great influence. And this is another reminder, church, that God sets up and God brings down kingdoms and rulers that history and events throughout all time are not determined by man, but by the sovereign hand of God. The great statue of Daniel 2 teaches us that God is in control of the flow of history. Empires rise, empires fall in accordance with his divine purpose. He and he alone is sovereign. And one of the ways that God's sovereign and loving hand comes to us is by confronting us with which kingdom we're living for. He does this on a daily basis, challenges us, convicts us, tries to reveal which kingdom we're actually living for, the kingdom of self or his kingdom. And so before we sing this last song, we've talked about the kingdom of self a lot the last couple of weeks. I just want to give us an opportunity here just to stop and to reflect on that question of which kingdom are you truly devoted to? Which kingdom are you building and advancing? Is it your kingdom or is it God's kingdom? And before you just quickly answer with the Bible answer, what evidence would you use to support your answer? What would you point to? Even this last week, you look at your time, your money, your affections, your hope, your allegiance. What would you point to and say, I'm living for God's kingdom and not the kingdom of of self, who is truly on the throne of your heart. Let me pray and then give us a chance to reflect before singing. God, we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We thank you, God, that as we open ourselves up to it, Lord, you speak to us, Lord, you, you convict us, you pierce us. We thank you, Lord, every week that in your faithfulness you come and that you, you do show us things in your word. We thank you that you are a living God, you are a powerful God, that you are ruling and reigning. God, we confess so often, Lord, that we are living for our own little kingdoms. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and we pray, oh God, that you'd help us to be faithful citizens of your kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness. So God, I pray in the next couple of moments that you would reveal, that you'd move in our hearts, help us be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.